Once more into the breach, dear friends! Once more! I'll close the wall up with our English dead! So unique! Wada-da, wada-da-da day. How many times I'ma have to say, it's a bull market, son, let those bovines play. Let them run in the sun, eating greens all day. Let them stomp, let them rumble. You can get out the way, or you can get in the flow. It's time to make hay. From sector to sector, from fun to fun, 52-week highs, stocks are on the run. Rising rates don't matter, inverted curve won't swerve, investors from buying. It takes a lot of nerve to be a bear this summer. Let me hear the funky drummer kicking the bass, smacking that snare. Nobody said it was fair, no one said it makes sense. You can get in the game or stay on the fence. This won't last forever, these runs always fade. Like the sun sets in August when the last song gets played. But don't fear the end, this ain't a last crusade. We're not Indiana Jones searching for the treasure. We're long-term investors, we take it measure for measure. We stay in the battle, we fight through the duress. This is a train for all seasons. This Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And can you feel the breeze? That's that summer wind blowing in more momentum into the stock market. U.S. markets powered right through the Fed's latest interest rate hike last week, despite a little turbulence on Thursday as investors weighed some non-committal comments from Fed Chair Jay Powell, particularly around whether the Fed will raise interest rates again in September. Here's Powell at last Wednesday's press conference. In September, we're going to look at, at two additional job reports, two additional CPI reports, lots of activity data. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at, and we're going to make that decision then. And that decision could, could mean another hike in, in September, or it could mean that we decide to maintain at that level. Data dependent. Powell kept repeating that phrase over and over again, and the data is tough to pin down. Yes, inflation has receded, clocking in at a 3% annual rate for both the Consumer Price Index and the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index. That's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. But if you strip out food and gas prices, the PCE is more like 4.1%, and the Fed wants that closer to 2%. Employment remains pretty robust, although job gains are slowing and wage growth is slowing too. The Fed wants wages to cool to take pressure off companies who then pass those costs on to us, the consumer. But we are unbowed. Consumer spending in June rose at a faster pace than personal income, and consumer sentiment is at a two-year high. If you're looking at all those data points and more, as the Federal Reserve does every day, you might come to the same conclusion that Jerome Powell and his fellow voting members of the FOMC are coming around to as well. So the staff now has uh, a noticeable slowdown in growth starting late, uh, later this year in the forecast, but given the resilience of the economy recently, they are no longer forecasting a recession. That soft landing a lot of investors have been banking on, it has a real shot of coming to pass. And investors are way out ahead of this, bidding the S&P 500 up 19% so far this year, and it goes way beyond the Magnificent 7 tech, internet, and consumer discretionary stocks. Nine of the S&P 500 super sectors were positive last week, and all three major markets were higher, with the Nasdaq popping 2%, the S&P 500 adding 1%, and the Dow climbing 0.6%. The Dow's 13 consecutive day winning streak was snapped on Thursday as an investors digested that Fed speak we just heard, but recouped all those losses on Friday. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, it's been several months since the stock market has taken a big dip. 
we haven't seen a 1% or greater drop for the S&P 500 in 60 days. That's nearly three times as long as it's been since the market popped more than 1%. That, my friends, is momentum, and it's been a consistently slow grind higher all summer long. Which leads us to number two, margin debt, which is the amount of money an investor borrows from their broker via a margin account and acts as a sentiment gauge for the stock market, is also flashing green lights. A rise in margin debt indicates increased optimism with investors willing to take on more leverage to capitalize on potential gains. On the flip side, a decline in margin debt signifies negative sentiment as investors become more risk averse and hesitant about the stock market's future. Well, guess what? Sentiment Trader points out that the NICE margin debt has gone from a negative 33% at the beginning of the year to just under 1% last week. Traders and investors are more and more confident about more gains ahead, and history is on their side. Every time margin debt has experienced that kind of a reversal from negative to positive, the stock market was higher a year later, 100% of the time. And number three, while the Fed would not commit to not raising interest rates again this year in its ongoing battle against inflation, that rise in rates has not crippled the economy or the stock market for that matter. First, the stock market. The S&P 500 is up 5% since the Fed started hiking rates in March of 2022. Now, it's not abnormal for the stock market to rally amid rate hikes. It actually happens a lot as investors start positioning themselves for the end and eventual lowering of those rates. But we went through a vicious bear market last year as the Fed began that rate hiking campaign and then rallied all the way back from that bottom in mid-October to that 5% gain from the beginning of those hikes. As for the economy, we know that spike in rates nearly broke the banking sector with three banks going under last spring, but consumers have held up throughout it all, and that may be because only 11% of U.S. household debt has an adjustable interest rate. That means that most Americans with existing fixed-rate mortgages, auto loans, credit cards, and student loans have not really felt the force of those rate hikes. Now, we've been spending ourselves silly digging deeper and deeper into credit card debt with the average borrower holding some $5,733 in credit card debt as APRs are now 24% or higher on some cards. But a strong jobs market with decent wage gains and a booming stock market are all contributing to what we call the wealth effect. We keep spending because most of us think it's going to be all right. Let's just hope we are right. Let's get set up for another very busy week ahead. And is it really August already? What happened? Earnings season is in full swing this week with nearly one-third of S&P 500 companies reporting results. We're going to hear results from widely held companies including Apple, Merck, Pfizer, Caterpillar, Amazon, Airbnb, and Gilead Sciences, just to name a few. According to FactSet, for the second quarter of 2023, with about half the companies reporting results, 80% of those companies have reported a positive earnings surprise, while 64% have reported a positive revenue surprise. That's the good news. But the blended earnings decline for the S&P 500 is a negative 7.3%. If that number holds, it'll mark the largest earnings decline reported by the index since the second quarter of 2020, when earnings fell 31.6%. Well, obviously, investors are looking right past this drop and betting on better earnings ahead. But keep a close eye on Amazon.com this week. Besides earnings, the company could be hit with a lawsuit from the Federal Trade Commission any day now. Back in late June, the FTC filed a complaint against Amazon for, quote, its years-long effort to enroll consumers into its Prime program without their consent, while knowingly making it difficult for those consumers to cancel their subscriptions to Prime. We don't know the damages or dollar amount the FTC is seeking, but Prime is one of Amazon's key arteries, and any changes to that subscription will impact its business in the future. On the economic front, the 
The jobs report is the big headliner of the week with the July non-farm payrolls report dropping on Friday. Economists are expecting around 185,000 jobs to have been added last month, which would be below the monthly average so far this year, but still pretty strong. Ahead of that, we're going to get the JOLTS report for June, tracking job openings, quits, and turnovers in the labor market. There are still more than 9 million job openings in the U.S., and the labor force participation rate for adults 25 to 55 is as strong as it has been for decades. On Wednesday, payroll provider ADP will report the National Employment Report tracking growth in private sector payrolls. Projections call for a gain of 210,000 jobs in July after payrolls surged by more than half a million back in June. These are some of the key data points Powell was talking about at last week's press conference, and we're going to get another round of labor data in August before the Fed meets again on interest rates in September. Across the pond, policymakers at the Bank of England will hold their latest meeting on monetary policy this Thursday. The UK central bank will likely raise interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point to five and a quarter percent, marking its 14th consecutive rate hike since it began tightening in late 2021 in an effort to combat soaring prices over there. At just under 8%, inflation in the United Kingdom is still the highest among G7 countries. Now we know what we know. The Fed raised the Fed funds rate a quarter point, as expected, to five and a quarter to five and a half percent. That's the highest level since 2001. That was expected. Fed Chair Powell waffled on whether more interest strikes are in store. That was kind of expected too, but there was something about what he said and didn't say that made it feel like this might not be the last time. Earnings, better than expected, but we expected that too. And the stock market has come a long way in a short time. So are we at a fork in the road, a pause in the junction, a pull off on the pass, a peak in the rally, or are we about to shift into really high gear into the end of the year? We need some guidance, we need some perspective, and we need a new recipe for these hot dog days of summer. We need our pal Kenny Paul Carey back on the Express, and we got him. Hello, my friend. Hey, how are you, Caleb? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being back. No surprises, right, Kenny? We got what we got from the Fed. Are we ready to move on from that narrative? We got no surprises. They telegraphed it very well. They told us to expect it. The markets were absolutely expecting it. And I got to tell you, even in the after, at the press conference, in the aftermarket, after Ray's commentary, right? He left the door wide open. He didn't shut it. He didn't say this is it. Yes, he said he's data dependent, but he's been saying he's data dependent. And by the way, we already know that there's at least three or four other Fed members that want to keep pushing rates higher. I think they got a 6% terminal rate number in their head. They've made it very clear. Loretta Mesta said it. Jimmy Bullard, who's no longer a member, has said it. Kashkari has said it. A couple of the governors have said it. So I still think there's actually room on the upside. And I think there needs to be because I think the Fed has to make it very clear that they have tackled inflation and that's it, that there's no chance it's going to pull, you know, a 1979-80 reversal on them when they prematurely slow down, right? Then they had, remember, Paul Volcker then had jam rates much higher in order to do that. And I don't think Jay Powell wants to follow in those same footsteps. He remains hawkish and he wants the markets to understand that. Listen, beside the fact is Jay Powell's made it very clear. He needs to see unemployment tick up. It hasn't done that. He needs to see the job market weaken. It hasn't done that. And he doesn't want the stock market to keep going higher and higher because that gives people an artificial sense that, hey, look, it's all great. Soft landing. Here we come. It's all good. Never going to be another dark day on the street. And that's a problem for him. 
Yeah, that's that wealth effect that makes people think that everybody's all right. But of course, we know stock market economy not connected. Sometimes they show up at the same summer barbecue, but they are not the one in the same. At the same time, if you look at the Fed, uh, the CME FedWatch tool, there's only a quarter percent probability that the Fed will hike again at its next meeting. That might go up maybe after yesterday, after the Wednesday press conference. That might go up over time, especially as we see more data. But does it even matter? Because the market has been rallying as if interest rates are going to stop going up and start to go down in the beginning of next year. Okay, so two things. First of all, there's eight weeks between now and the next Fed meeting. Remember, there is no August hike. There is that whole Jackson Hole boondoggle, and there will certainly be commentary around there, not only from Jay Powell, but other central bankers that show up talking about their own economies and where they're going. And so we'll get some kind of guidance out of that, or at least maybe some hints if you read between the lines. But there's eight weeks worth of data that has to come. And we're going to get five more inflation reads. We'll get the PCE tomorrow. We're going to get CPI, PPI in August, PCE in August, and then CPI and PPI again in September ahead of the Fed meeting. So to your point, we could see it go down, but we could also see it go up if the CPI either holds steady or starts to even tick up slightly. I think that's going to put Jay Powell back in that seat of, look, we're not done yet. And I think that's what's going to happen, quite honestly, between me and you. Now, how's the market reacting? I think there's two things going on here. I think there's a lot of money that's been sitting on the sidelines. People that were waiting for that Mikey Wilson, Morgan Stanley, S&P 3000 call, which never materialized. So I think they were doing that. I think there were people sufficiently concerned uh, that the summer was going to be bumpy and they put money into short-term treasuries. They didn't put it into the market. They put it into short duration bonds, three and six months that were giving them an annualized return of 5.4%. And I think what's important is that people understand when you talk about short duration bills at 5.4%, you have to stay in for the year. So you have to roll them every three months. If you don't roll them every three months, you're getting a quarter of that number. Right. And I think there's a lot of confusion around that. Someone going, oh, well, I can get 5.4% for three months. No, you really can't. Right. You're only getting a quarter of that if you're only rolling it for three months. But that being said, as the market has taken off, as the earnings season has started to show great numbers, albeit a much lower bar, but they're starting to show great numbers, we started to see people almost in that FOMO fear, right? That FOMO craze, like, oh my God, oh my God, the, you know, the market's not going to back off. I have to get in. And this is the problem with individual investors that try to time the market. If you're a trader, that's one thing. You're going to whip it around all day long, every day. The long term doesn't make any difference to you. But if you're a long term retail investor, the last thing you want to do is try to pick tops and bottoms. You want to stay in it. You want to make sure your portfolio is well balanced. You want to be dynamic. Remember, investing is not static. You are allowed to change your mind if something changes. In this case, tech has gotten really stretched. You and I both know that. I, I own tech. I am absolutely not chasing it up here. I wouldn't, but I am adding money to the underperforming sectors that will balance out my portfolio. So while I'm not selling my NVIDIA or my Microsoft to bring it more in balance, I'm adding money to healthcare, to consumer staples. And so by increasing the position in those sectors, I've actually decreased the position in my tech sectors without having to sell my tech names that I don't want to sell as a long-term investor. Yeah, I know. And that's at FOMO. We're going to talk about that cash on the sidelines in a minute. Let's get back to earnings because they are better than expected. Kenny, they're always better than expected because we go with the doomsday scenario and analysts keep lowering their expectations, but companies like to blow it out a little bit. That's always good for the share price in the near term. But is there anything unexpected? I know the numbers are good. What about the commentary? Is there anything that's surprising you inside of them? No, I think what's surprising me actually is that the comment, the forward commentary has been fairly robust actually more robust than I thought it was going to be. 
But because I'm expecting that the economy is going to kind of stumble as we move through the summer and into the fall. But if you hear some of this commentary from some of these CEOs and CFOs, that's what's a little bit surprising to me. Some of it feels even much better than a lot of people assume. They're, look what Mary Barra said the other day. Not only did they have blowout numbers, but her guidance going forward was just off the charts. And that's going to come back to bite her in the backside because guess what? She's going to negotiate with the UAW in September. And just like they do to the airlines and the UPS, those workers are going to knock on her door and say, really? These earnings are so great on our backs. We want you to start sharing some of it with us, which is going to continue to put upward pressure on wages. And that's going to continue to put upward pressure on prices. And that's the fear that j that's a repeat of the 1980s. It was called wage price spiral inflation. And I'm not saying these guys don't deserve more money. They do. They didn't bring this inflation on. The Fed brought it on. The administration brought it on. So these guys are just trying to keep up and they have to get more money in order to keep up. And so this is the fear of this wage price. Value. But to your point, yes, the bar was very low. Actually, I think 81% of the companies that have so far reported have beaten on the top and bottom lines, which is well ahead of the average that tends to be like in the high 60s, low 70s. So that shouldn't be a surprise just because I think the bar was low. But I do think the market's a little bit stretched and a little bit ahead of itself. Even though the news is good, I think we've look at look at the chart. We've gone up in a straight line. We haven't tested the S&P trend line support since May. And so I think, you know, people need to be prepared for some catalyst. And I don't know what it's going to be yet. Something that no one's expecting. It's going to cause, oh, my God, it's going to cause the market to swiftly pull back, not crash, but it'll pull back. And you know what? It's going to shake the branches. And there are going to be some people that hang on and there are going to be other people that fall out. Perfectly normal for that to happen. It's a market. That's the way. It's not supposed to go straight up like this. But Kenny, market breadth is pretty strong. What could go wrong with this kind of momentum? You were seeing that Dow theory play, and I saw machinery sector was rallying, the industrials were rallying, the transports were rallying. Of course, tech has been the driver at the front of the train here. So when market breadth is this strong, and we know what we know, what could go wrong with this kind of momentum? Well, so you're going to get hit with some event that no one's expecting. And it doesn't actually have to be an economic event. It could be maybe a geopolitical event. It could be something that some black swan type of event that's going to cause people to get nervous. And then when it does, the money's going to come out of, as you and I both know, the money's not going to come out of healthcare, which is down 4% on the year so far. It's going to come out of semis that are up 45%, or it's going to come out of some of these social media communication stocks, metas up 148%. That's where the money's going to come out of. And that doesn't necessarily mean, again, that the bottom is going to fall out. It just means that those are the names that investors will immediately go to because there's so much profit in there that they want to lock that in. They're not going to sell you healthcare if it's down 4%. What are they going to do? That's not where they're going to go. But the money that comes out of maybe some of those sexy high growth tech names will be put to work in the big, boring, but what I call big, boring, yet beautiful, kind of large cap, good divvy payers, names that will uh, stabilize in a storm. Yeah, stabilizing storm, good cash flow, stable dividends. That's what you're kind of looking for. Right. Growing dividends. Right. Absolutely. And the, at the same time, and you touched on it earlier, Kennedy, you were talking about short-term bonds, but there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. $5.4 as of last week, according to the Investment Company Institute. That's a lot more ammo for stocks or are big investors comfortable with that 4% right now just because we've had a pretty good run in the stock market out of those bear market lows and 4% feels good for a lot of that cash they're worried about. Well, you know, it's a very interesting conversation. I had a conversation with a client the other day who has, in fact, been rolling six-month treasuries with a lot of his cash, right? He's got a fair amount invested in stocks, 
but he was just a little bit nervous going into the summer and into the fall. And you and I both know that the fall tends to be another volatile time. September and October can be volatile months. And so this guy's talking to me about getting 5.4% on six months. So he's getting half of that if he just keeps it for six months. But he feels comfortable enough that his invested portion in stocks is enough to keep him happy, give him exposure. But he wants to have the cash on the side until he gets through what he views as kind of the, the rough time. And he views that as between now and mid-October. Yeah. And maybe that allows him to take a, a few weeks vacation and not worry so much about the ticks of the market because it may be the dog days of summer, but the market's been uh, anything but quiet. All right. You've talked about some of the sectors that have come a long way. Definitely the internet and communication stocks, definitely the semis and AI stocks. But what is overhyped in your opinion and what is underhyped? Well, listen, I think overhyped like a lot of people. I think the minute anyone says AI, you know, the stocks go crazy, which is why I'm always curious during this earnings season to hear how many times the C-suite mentions artificial intelligence, because that seems to be the driver. So I think that's a little bit hype. Not that I don't think artificial intelligence is real. It absolutely is. Is it here to stay? Absolutely. Is it involved in almost everything? Yes, you can have exposure to artificial intelligence at JP Morgan the same way you can have it at C3.ai, the same way you can have it at UNH if you want it. You're getting exposure everywhere to artificial intelligence. So I think some of that is just way overhyped. So that's what makes me a little bit nervous. But on the other side, we've seen small and mid-cap names suddenly pick their heads up, right? Because those have been underperformers all year. They're now up, what, about 10% year to date when they were almost 11% year to date, the IJJ and IJT and the IWM, which were all really kind of down slightly to flat on the year, have suddenly in the last six or seven weeks rallied by 10%. I think they're still undervalued considering the rest of the market. So I'm looking there. And like I said to you, healthcare, financials, basic materials are all places that I want to put new cash because I think those are have been some of the underperformers, communication names, that's up nearly 40%. Tech is up nearly 40%. I am absolutely not chasing those names. I own them. I'm not selling them, but I'm not chasing them. And then we've had the silly stocks of the month club back in, in style here, Kenny. We had Carvana up some 880% or something like that. It was up a thousand percent before it ticked off a little bit. And then the meme stocks are back. So the retail investors have not necessarily gone away. They're just being a little bit more selective. How much influence do you think they're having? Listen, I think that they have a significant amount of influence, but I got to tell you, I don't play in that space like the Garvana names and the mean names and all that excitement. Great. It's up 800% and I missed that move. Wonderful. But if you and I both know one negative headline and that stock could just fall right out of bed and I'm not interested. I don't sit in front of my computer all day watching every tick. So I want to make sure that I'm comfortable, right? And I'm not comfortable playing in those meme stocks, but there are plenty of people that are. I would say it's probably the generation behind us and behind them that's more comfortable playing that space than I am. So I don't, and I don't necessarily think that names like Carvana and some of these meme stocks is driving the broader market. I do for a segment of the investing public, but for guys that are in our generation, I don't think it's driving the market at all. Yeah, just drives the headlines and, you know, headline sell ads, and that's the business of financial media. But we both live in it and we know what's going on there. All right. What's got you worried? You talked about the things that we don't know. Of course, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what the next black or gray swan will be. Could be climate with all this heat and intense heat going across the planet this summer. But what sort of from a market to market perspective or even a global perspective has got you worried, if anything? 
Listen, I think for me, it's more geopolitical, whether it's the ongoing crisis in Russia, Ukraine, and who gets dragged in and who doesn't get dragged in, whether it's more threats coming out of China or with Taiwan, because I do think that that's a very real problem. Whether or not it happens next month or a year from now, the fact is they've made it very clear that they want Taiwan under their leadership. He wants to control it. And then if they control it, think about what else they control, which is why U.S. companies and European companies are starting to move away from being so dependent on China. You know, we're building semi-plants here in Ohio, but guess what? They're not going to be ready till 2025. And if China takes over Taiwan next year, that's still going to be a problem for us. And so it's stuff like that that has me more worried uh, rather than any economic data points at the moment. The only thing I would imagine is if we hear the Fed hike rates again and they get us to 6%, which is where I think they want to be, I think that's the level that's going to allow it not to crash, but not to be a soft landing, but kind of a bumpy landing. If they go above 6%, then I think things are going to start to break. And then I think you'll see more of a visceral reaction in stocks and certainly the big name stocks. But I don't see that yet. But that's also why I'm also not chasing the tech names because I'm happy where I own them. And if they back off, I'm still good. Absolutely. So well, I just mentioned some things on the global front and the geopolitical front, but what about the performance of some of the international sectors outside the US? This is one of those years, at least in the first part, where we saw other stock markets around the world outperforming the US for the first time in a long time. Short trend, long-term trend, the beginning of a new era, or just a, a blip? No, no, I don't think it's a short trend at all. Look at Europe. Europe is all up, other than the UK, the rest of Europe is all up double digits close to if not 20%, uh, even a little bit better, like Italy's up nearly 25%. Spain and France up nearly 18%, right? The CAC 40 up 16% and the broader Euro stock is up 16%. I like Europe. And so therefore, I, I think Europe is also in for continued good results, right? I think things are starting to change in Europe. Yes, Christine Lagarde came out and raised rates again. As she said, she's also made that very clear, but their rates are still at 375 on the ECB. So they're still well below where we are. But yet the market seemed to be stabilizing. They are doing a good job, individual countries, at, at tackling inflation. Some obviously doing better than others, but I'm bullish on Europe. All right. Well, you mentioned Europe and you mentioned Italy and you know, Kenny, we don't come to you just for the <laughs> advice. We come to you. We come to you for the recipe and we'll take some advice. So we need a summer recipe for these hot dog days of summer, something cool for a nice summer evening and a nice wine pairing to go with it. What do you got for us, chef? So listen, my nephew and I uh, made this great dish the other night. It's a mussels bruschetta, right? So it's light. You put it on toasted Italian bread. It is delicious. So what you're going to make is you're going to make the mussels, right? So you need the mussels. You need shallots. You need a hot pepper like uh, jalapeno, just a little bit, just to give it a kick. Or you could use red pepper flakes. You need plenty of garlic, white wine. And in this case, I always use the Pinot Grigio Santa Margarita. That's my go-to summer white wine. It's relatively reasonable in terms of its price. It's always good and chilled. It works great, both in cooking as well as drinking. And then you need salt and pepper, right? And so you you start by sauteing the shallots and the garlic and the hot pepper and the red pepper flakes in a little bit of olive oil. And then you're going to add your mussels and you're going to add your cup of white wine. You're going to add salt and pepper and you're going to cover it, steam it, let the mussels open. It takes about 10 minutes for the mussels to open, right? The ones that don't open, you throw away. Once you've done that, Take it off the heat, let it cool down. Now remove the muscle from the shell. So go through the shells and just push the muscle out, put them in a, in a bowl, keep them separate. Go back to your pot that's got all that delicious juice in it. Now you've taken Roman tomatoes, which you've diced, and you've taken parsley, Italian parsley, which you've diced. 
put that right into the sauce. Turn it back up to medium, saute it around so the tomatoes just get a little bit soft, right? Right before you're done, take the mussels, throw them back in there, let it all blend together, take it off the heat. You've made thick slices of uh, nice Italian bread. You put it in the oven, you've dressed it with a little bit of olive oil, put it in the oven, you've toasted it so it's nice and toasty, and then take a scoop full of uh, mussels with the tomato and the garlic and the shallots and put it right on top of the bruschetta and put a little bit of the sauce that's on it because you don't want the bread to fall apart, but you want it to soak up just some of that sauce. Serve that with a chilled Pinot Grigio Santa Margarita or your favorite white wine. It was perfect. As a matter of fact, you can see the pictures on my Twitter. The night we made it, I posted it on my Twitter because I featured it in, in my note. I think the note was on Monday. But I put a picture of it as well. I got to tell you, we sat outside in the deck. The, the tide was coming in. The wind was up. It was a perfect summer dish. Oh, my God. My mouth is watering right now, folks. We're going to link to that. Please follow Kenny Paul Carey on X, Twitter, whatever we're calling these days. And he's got a YouTube channel where he gives his daily market commentary with a recipe. What's better than that? Kenny Paul Carey, we're so, so happy to have you back on The Express. I feel better already. Thanks for the guidance and thanks for the recipe. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from the year 1996 when Alan Greenspan, the Fed chair at the time, used the term irrational exuberance to describe what seemed like out-of-control enthusiasm for buying stocks as the dot-com bubble was just starting to percolate. Greenspan used that term in a speech entitled The Challenge of Central Banking in a Democratic Society for the American Enterprise Institute. It means what you think it means, widespread and undue economic optimism. When investors start believing that the rise in prices in the recent past predicts the future, they are acting as if there's no uncertainty in the market causing a positive feedback loop of even higher prices. Here's Greenspan in his own words from 1996. How do we know when irrational exuberance has unduly escalated asset values, which then become subject to unexpected and prolonged contractions as they have in Japan over the past decade? The question is, do you think investors are being irrationally exuberant given the rise in asset prices and the realities of the economy? Or do you think asset prices are fairly valued? We actually want to know how you feel about this, so we're running our bi-monthly investor sentiment survey right now to find out. We want to know how the smartest readers and listeners are feeling right now. Bullish, bearish, chillin', or chomping at the bit? We're going to drop a link to our six-minute sentiment survey in the show notes, and we'd love it if you'd take the time to complete it and let us know what your vibe is these days. We'll share the results with you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to our pal Kenny Paul Carey for climbing aboard the Express. Come for the advice and stay for the recipe. We'll link to Kenny's terrific note with that recipe for Muscles Bruschetta in the show notes, as well as all the other reports we cited in today's show. Keep it on track this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.